Good morning to you. We have a slightly live studio audience for the first time in a while as the ushers and greeters and some of the elders are here in our uh, planned reopening and they're getting uh, used to the changes. So it's good to have a few more folks here. Shifting gears slightly, at about 6 p.m. on the 11th of March, back in 1812, I believe it was, a fire broke out in a print shop in Sarampore, India. Now nobody knows how the fire started. All they know is they were only able to salvage a few financial records and the title deed to some of the properties. Everything else succumbed to the flames that lit up the night sky in India. Now that fire, so random, so tragic, was particularly gospel notable because it was kingdom strategic. You see, that fire was at the mission station of none other than William Carey. And 12 years of his laborious efforts literally went up in smoke in a single night, and nearly everything was lost. Carey's entire library burned to the ground. His completed Sanskrit dictionary, part of his Bengali dictionary, two of the grammar books he compiled, and ten translations of the Bible were utterly lost. Gone also were, were uh, typesets for printing in 14 indigenous languages. Vast quantities of very expensive and hard-to-obtain English paper and other essential effects all went up in smoke that night. And as you read that story, and as you see that history... You may wonder, God, I don't understand. How can this be your plan? And if you've ever wondered something similar, you're not alone. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk will stumble over this very question in our text today. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God, this is the second of our three Sundays in the book of Habakkuk. Today we're going to start at Habakkuk 1.12. Habakkuk 1.12. We'll be looking at the second question or complaint and petition that Habakkuk makes to the Lord and hear the Lord's reply. And so as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's first turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in His text. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You've given us a Word from You that no prophet spoke from his own accord, but he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that the testimony of Habakkuk, which is so true when we are in times of tumult and we do not understand, that we can look to the timeless truths of Scripture and hear others who have also struggled and how you answered, not necessarily in the ways they expected, but in ways that were needed. And so we pray, Lord, in the times when it seems like we are in the tumble dryer and uh, you can hear the tennis shoe bouncing hard against the walls and we don't understand why are you not acting? Why are you acting differently than we're expecting? God, how can this be your plan? I pray that today's text would help us to have a lot of, 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 of anchors that we can put finger holds and toe holds in when we uh, cling to the rock and the winds and the gales beat against us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So the Word of God says in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, this is Habakkuk's second question of the Lord after the Lord has just answered the previous one. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them, that is the Babylonians in context, as judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them, the Babylonians, for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook and he drags them out with his net and he gathers them in his dragnet and so he rejoices and is glad at these conquests. Therefore, he sacrifices, not to the Lord, he sacrifices to his net and he makes offerings to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. And then the Lord does answer for the second time in this book. And this is chapter 2 and verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits the appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he never has enough. He gathers for himself all the nations and collects as his own all people. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up that which is not his own. For how long? and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man, and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire." and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink and 
uh, pours out wrath and makes them drunk in order to, to gaze at their nakedness. For you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the the blood of man and the violence to the earth and to cities and to all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, last week we discovered a righteous prophet profoundly puzzled because God's word seemed muzzled. Habakkuk observed the the rampant iniquity among God's people, among Israel, and he asked, God, why are you not doing something? And then God answered. But the answer only led Habakkuk to new questions. God's answer last Sunday, God's answer in last week's text was, I am going to do a work in your day that you would not believe even if I told you. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, who we would call today the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Habakkuk hears that and he doesn't get it. (laughs) He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) God, how can this be your plan. I wanted you to act to bring revival, and instead you're going to bring upheaval, and you're going to use these ruthless people to do it. See, 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk rightly saw that there was too much wickedness among the righteous, and now he learns there's about to be too much power among the wicked. This is confusing because Habakkuk knows who God is. He knows the Word of God. He's a man of God. And Habakkuk knows that God is holy, so he can't tolerate iniquity. Habakkuk knows that God is mighty, so that he could stop, indeed can stop, this iniquity. What Habakkuk cannot understand is why God would allow a brutal, idol-worshiping people like the Babylonians to punish the comparatively less wicked Israelites who were wayward. His math works like this. It's something like this in Habakkuk's head. If the wicked defeat the wicked, well, then the wicked still win. So I don't get it, God. Why are you working this way? How can this be your plan? And that brings us to our first point today. There are three major sections today. The first major section I want to unpack from this text is regarding our confusion. As a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of the one true God, you're going to have moments of confusion. And if you're honest, you've had them before. 
It's only in Sunday school that everyone has all the answers. But, but in truth, in reality, in Scripture, in life, there is our confusion. And we need to contend with it. And the first thing God wants us to see in our confusion from this text is that A, we need to know that we can be honest to God in our prayers. When you're confused, you can be honest to God in your prayers. If the book of Habakkuk teaches anything, it is that we can be honest to God in our prayers. Habakkuk offers an unblushing, unvarnished resuscitation of his utter confusion at the situation. He doesn't sugarcoat it in our book. He just lays it all out before the Lord. And do you know what's interesting? There's nowhere in Scripture... Where, where a saint is ever castigated anywhere in the Bible for sharing openly what they find troubling so long as their petitions are not framed blasphemously. And that means we can be utterly honest to God in prayer as long as we're not blasphemous in that praying. It is no affront to God Almighty. You need to hear that, Church of the Living God, because you're going to have points where, where cancer or death or upheaval or uncertainty or something and you're confused. And you don't need to give the Sunday school answer to God. You need to go to God with the truth of your confusion. And so it raises the question in our prayer lives, is there a genuine intimacy or is there a perfunctory religiosity in our prayer lives? You see, one is biblical prayer and one is just religion. And so which is true for me and you in our prayer lives? I, I want you to think about <laughs> the petitions that God inspired in Scripture. We have two of them from Habakkuk and they're raw and real. And, and many saints, when they struggle, when things really shake in their life, I find those saints almost always find the Psalms. Even people who hadn't discovered the Psalms. It's like, did you read this book of the Bible, the Psalms? And, and they're really excited because someone is speaking their heart cry. And I think many saints go to the Psalms when they have qualms over life's confusing bombs that blow up all around us, I think the reason the Psalms so resonate with us in those moments is because the psalmists are never remiss in this, in letter A today. They always share their heart's cry in very honest terms to the living God. And so do we pray with emotional honesty as does the psalmist, and as does Habakkuk, and as does others, who, who simply take their confusion and their consternation and they put it before the Lord Almighty. Do we pray like the New Testament tells us in 1 Peter 5-7, where the Bible says, cast all your anxiety on Jesus because He cares for you. Many times we think we can't tell Jesus. How crazy is that? How completely unbiblical is that? How ridiculous is that if you know who Jesus is? Um, increasingly, I am rawly honest with God in my prayer closet. And, but years ago, it wasn't so. Uh, instead, I prayed stained glass prayers that seemed more sensible than visceral. And then I realized the more I studied Scripture, 
Jesus in the garden, Boaos, and we'll learn about that in a little while on a future Sunday, he cries out to God that this cup would pass. The more I studied Scripture, the more I understood that we are invited to be honest to God in our prayers. After all, He already knows our, our hearts and our feelings. He is a tender Savior. He is a gentle Father. He is the world's truest friend. And so we can be honest to God in our prayers so long as we're not blasphemous with God in our praying. Now, when we find ourselves in in times of confusion, and, and we will, it's important that we also incorporate letter B. If letter A is you can be honest with God or you're praying, letter B is this. We must know that we can have an unswerving conviction regarding God's unchanging character. When the world falls apart, when we go, how can this be your plan? I don't understand. When we're being honest and unvarnished, we need to know that even in the midst of all that tempest of turmoil, that we can have an unswerving, an unmovable conviction regarding who God is, His utterly unchanging character. Listen again to verse 12, how Habakkuk prays. Honestly, but he also clings to God's unchanging character. He says, are you not from everlasting? He knows who God is, the eternal God. Oh Lord, my God, he knows who God is in his position as as Habakkuk's Lord and God. My Holy One. So the world seems unright, things aren't going right, but God is still the Holy One. And, And he says, we shall not die. I'd encourage you to circle that. We'll come back to that. That's a really interesting statement. Because of who he knows God is, even though everything seems to be coming apart in his life, he has a hope in the Lord in the midst of the Babylonian horde. O Lord, you have ordained them, the Babylonians, as a judgment. This is coming. I can't stop this. I have to endure this. And you, O rock. See, God was going to be the rock when everything else was going to turn to sand have established them, the wicked Babylonians for this season, as a reproof. He accepts that. When Habakkuk is confused regarding what he does not understand, his circumstances, life doesn't look the way he thinks it should, he leans on the everlasting arms, he leans on what he can know for certain, and that is God's holy and wholly unchanging eternal character. In fact, Habakkuk reflects first on God's eternality. And then he he reflects on God's sovereignty as divinity, uh, his unchanging holiness in spite of all the wickedness in the world in front of him, in spite of all the brokenness that's about to come upon him. Uh, All around him he sees the brokenness, and yet he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Habakkuk has a a firm conviction in God's ultimate goodness. Even in this, he, he looks to the God of hope and he finds hope as we see in his statement of faith. Don't miss it. Most saints do. In the face of frightening, certain, impending judgment and utter discouragement, he says, we shall not He has faith, even though he knows things are going to be hard. Habakkuk trusts in God's providential dealings in a world that is reeling. 
O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. O rock, you have established them for reproof. And so when you're... (laughs) Your world experiences uncomfortable, even painful upheaval. Look to the north star of God's unchanging character and you will be able to navigate your ship of faith no matter how rough the sea or how strong the wind. The north star is the unmoving character of God. Many times I I don't know the what's. What's going on? Many times I don't know the why's. Why is this going on? The only thing I can hold on to is the who. And he is God. And he is on the throne. And the heavens can shake. And the earth can dissolve like a scroll. But he is still God. And he is still good. And he is still a tender father to those who surrender and ask him to be their savior. When economies, even whole societies, convulse and buckle, I want you to remember Hebrews 13.8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 is a good verse to write next to Habakkuk 1.12. When it seems that the, the righteous are sinning, and the wicked are winning, and the mocker is grinning, I want you to remember Malachi 3.6 in this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, the people of God, are not consumed. We might be squeezed. We might be hard-pressed. We are not consumed. Because our king has us in his holy grasp. Now, (laughs) when what we see before us does not seem to line up with what God has told us, then we need to remember letter C today. Letter C. Know that we can at times have an uncomfortable confusion regarding God's actions or his permissions of others' actions in this broken world. I'll say that again. Know that at We can at times, as a believer, as a person who's walking with God, we can have uncomfortable confusion. We don't get it. With God's actions, or or maybe it's just God's permissions of another's actions in this broken world. I want you to look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Habakkuk says of God, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You see, friends, we live in a fallen world, and the Bible knows it. Christians forget it. All of creation, the Bible tells us, groans in expectation that it will experience the the release and the righting of all that's wrong. But that day is not today. You see, for now, in this season... As people are given time to repent, the Bible says, that means there will be things in this world that require repenting of. Amen? That means people are going to sin against one another and against you. The Bible tells us it's worse than that. That Satan himself, for a season, has been given limited dominion. He's the ruler of this world at this time. 
And at times, that is really readily apparent to the observant, isn't it? You can kind of get the idea. This is not working the way it should be working. But remember, friends, it's just for now. It's just for this moment. It is not eternal, though it is infernal. Your observation that the world is not as it should be is 100% biblically accurate. Because right now it isn't. But God isn't done. So it's not unbiblical. You're not a bad Christian. If you notice these incongruities between how life should work in God's perfection and how life does work in our current condition of corruption. So we at times are going to have uncomfortable confusion regarding God's actions or His permissions of others' actions in this fallen, broken world. Now, if the saints are confused and we have the Word of God, I think the ain'ts are going to be a little more confused, right? And so, if the saints are confused, imagine how the ain'ts will look at this world and misconstrue the data they're experiencing. And that brings us to letter D today. Letter D is this. Know that we can have grave consternation regarding fallen man's evaluation of a situation. We can have grave consternation about fallen man's evaluation of a situation. That, that this stuff is happening and it's not the way God's intending and he's permitting this horrible thing and there will be lost people who come to all kinds of wrong conclusions. Well, there is no God. God isn't good. Uh, this God doesn't care. Where's Jesus? You heard these things? Yeah. The Babylonian bully in our passage sees the ease of his victories and he wrongly concludes that all of this is because he is wonderful. Because of his ambition, because of his intuition, because of his dedication, he doesn't realize it's all because of God's permission. He doesn't see that, so he thinks more highly of himself than he ought. They arrogantly, in our passage, they begin to think they are God. Do you know anybody in your life who doesn't know Jesus, who walks around thinking he might be God? At least that's the way he behaves and people around him. I am the king of this entity, enterprise, location, situation. I am the big kahuna. Look at verse 14 and see if you see any similarities between the Babylonians' victories and the swelled head that they got from it. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So he talks about there's this randomness and we're all just little ants and we're going to get stepped on like a bug. Verse 15, he, this is referring to the Babylonian victor, brings all of these little weak things, the fish of the sea that can't swim away and the little bugs that get stepped on. He, the Babylonian victor, brings all of them up with a hook. He doesn't gently grab them. He, he meanly and mercilessly hooks them. And he drags them out with his net from where they were happy and safe to where they are no longer safe. And he grabs them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices. Yay, for me, look what I did. He rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he, the Babylonian bully, sacrifices to the Lord. No, he sacrifices to his net. And he makes offerings to his dragnet. The thing that made him 
powerful, he thinks, is the most important thing. If it's his army, if it's his, his, his political party, if it's his success in business, if it's his money, he sacrifices. The man who thinks that he is God thinks the thing that made him that way is the thing that matters, and that's what he should worship. Therefore he, the Babylonian bully, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? Habakkuk's question is, is this going to go on forever? It's going on right now. Is it going to go on forever? Have you ever met an arrogant victor? It's a good thing you live in New Jersey. We never meet those people, right? People that seem to be winning, and boy, are they grinning, and they sure want to tell you about how they're sinning, and that they can get away with it. They want to sin against you a little bit. Have you ever met an arrogant victor? Someone who, instead of praising God for his victories, instead thinks he is God because he has graciously been permitted by God to have those victories in this season. Humans are very easily deluded. We have a lot of Babylonian in our heart, my friends. We are deluded to think that the presence of our own personal strength or wealth or power is because we are the man of the hour and others should cower. But friends, Daniel 2.21, you ought to put next to Habakkuk 1.16. Habakkuk 116, right, Daniel 2.21, because it reminds us that it is God who deposes kings and raises up rulers. The, the powerful pilots of the world often forget what Jesus said, that they would have no power at all unless it has been given to them by God. So in our confusion... Letter E is essential. In our confusion, letter E is essential. Know that we can have confident expectation of God hearing and indeed answering our prayers. Know that we can have a confident expectation of God hearing and answering our prayers. I didn't say God's going to answer them the way you wanted. I didn't say God's going to answer them the timing you wanted. But you can have a confident an expectation of God hearing and answering your prayers. Habakkuk does. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he, and that is God in this passage, will say to me and what answer concerning my complaint. That is, God's going to give me an answer. I believe that God hears and answers prayer. That is confidence from the prophet, and he waits is to wait patiently on the Lord, but he expects God hears and he answers prayer. Habakkuk rightly possessed a confident expectation that God would hear, and according to his perfect wisdom, he would answer his prophet's prayers. Now, God's timing might not be our timing. God's answer might not be our preferred answer, but God always hears and he always answers the prayers of his servants. How do we know this? Because God's word tells us and it's impossible for God to lie. Remember, we go back to God's character. We're honest to God in our questions, and then we remember who he is. And this is what God tells us. In the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles 16.9, might be a verse to, to write down, 2 Chronicles 16.9 promises that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 
Now, that doesn't mean everyone's prayers, but those whose hearts are fully committed to him, not necessarily perfect people, not necessarily people who have got it all together, but people whose hearts are fully committed to him that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth seeking to strengthen those people. In the New Testament, it says something similar. In 1 Peter 3.12, 1 Peter 3.12 promises the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. Now, my righteousness is ultimately in Christ. (laughs) And that means as a Christian, he's listening to my prayers. I don't know if this is walking in sanctification that he's particularly attentive or just justification, but I know that to the Christian, we should pay attention that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. You can go back to the Old Testament again. In Jeremiah 29, 12, the Bible has God inviting us. The, the Lord of heaven says, pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 12. You can go to the New Testament. In, in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask for anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask according to his will, we know that we have what we've asked of him. And so, friends, in our confusion, do not succumb to the delusion that God does not hear and that God does not care. Instead, turn to God in fervent, focused, frequent prayer. Be honest with God in those prayers. Now, so far we've focused on the first part of our passage, which basically is Habakkuk's second prayer to God. But now we need to shift gears in our time together. And and I want us to look not at Habakkuk's prayer, but at God's answer. And so we shift, therefore, from our confusion to God's determination. God's answer, God's determinations to the prophet's questions. That's point two today regarding God's determinations. Habakkuk was confused. Why are you letting the less righteous swallow up the more righteous? The Babylonians overtake the Israelites. Why is Babylon the not-so-great morally going to be permitted to become Babylon the great victoriously? And the answer is, God's not giving Babylon a free pass. The answer is, God is not giving Babylon a free pass. Babylon will ultimately be accountable for their actions. And so sometimes God permits us room to maneuver, but he doesn't give us that room forever. God's righteous standard still stands, and one day we will not be able to withstand when the God of the universe calls the scales of divine justice to balance. Friends, will not the judge of all the earth ultimately do right? And the answer is he will. Therefore, Jesus tells us to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. You see, God does not give us opportunity for us to squander it, like the wicked servant who buries his talents. Uh, nor power that we might abuse it. The Babylonians are given great power and they use it in stupid ways. God does not give us great wealth that we might hoard it where moth and rust destroy. God uh, does not give us light that we might hide it 
under a bushel. God does not give us truth that we might twist it into something more palatable that tickle ears and fill pews. And nor does God give us morality that we might truncate it so that the world celebrates what God castigates. Instead, God is going to pronounce woe to his foes. And that ought to make people pause and say woe, W-H-O-A, to these W-O-E-S's. And so it causes us to ask the question, God's going to give five powerful woes. And in Scripture, when God says woe, you should pay attention. They don't come a lot, but they come hard and fast and strong, and God is not happy. So how are we doing in these five areas of woe? The first woe we need to see is letter A today, and it comes from verses 9 through 11. Woe to the unethical, to the unethical. Now, we go, well, this is just how we do business in Jersey, business in New York, business in the East Coast, business in 2020. God says, woe to the unethical. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain, not, not gain in general, evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. That is the very house of iniquity you've built that's so uh, wonderful. God is hearing crying out for justice. Now, I want you to understand that God is not against the wealthy. There are some people running around with a half-cocked Scripture thinking that God is against the wealthy. No, there are wealthy people in Scripture. There are poor people in Scripture. It's always what they do to God that God judges them on. But rather, this passage is referring to those who acquire their wealth unethically by cutting off others. In, in making his house secure physically and financially so that it's imposing and aesthetically pleasing, God says, I find this sickening if it is achieved by treating others unethically. Now, some do that by, by redefining rules, by, by twisting laws and instituting unjust processes. And these folks are unethical, but they're also really subtle. There's a way you can kind of still look respectable in society and yet be in this woe category. However, there are others who are not so subtle, who are openly brutal, and which is the second of the five warnings God says in its letter B on our outlines today. Woe to the brutal. Woe to the brutal. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and who founds a city on iniquity. You see, might of way might win right away, but it won't win ultimately. You can pummel the people, but one day their maker will hold you accountable for what you did. Verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? That is, you can build your whole life up for something, and it's really nothing. And when you meet God, it will be an entirely different situation. So woe to the unethical who cheats, and the bully who beats. But then there's a third woe, and it's to the craven materialist who will use whatever means 
to fuel their unsatiable or insatiable acquisitional ends. The God of the universe warns this person in letter C today, woe to the plunderer. Woe to the plunderer. Verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. He, he, he pushes debt onto people. He makes everyone a debtor to him in a way where he's been uh, plundering them. So to those who would take as much as they can, whenever they can, by any means they can, no matter how their neighbor is pilfered in this endeavor, God says, hey, justice is coming. Verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble and then you will be spoiled for them. Talionic justice, you reap what you sow. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, they're going to come back and they're going to call you to account. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of those people are going to come back and plunder you. You'll have no help on the day when trouble comes to you because all you gave was trouble to others and they will pay you back what you gave them. And we see in history, A.D. and B.C., this story, that nations built on exploitation and subjugation have ultimately fallen, usually by those they have exploited. Uh, the bourgeoisie in France, who, who callously scoffed when there was no food for the peasants, let them eat cake. Their heads came off in the guillotine. When those people whose children did not have crumbs decided it was time to throw out the bums. And in our text today, the fearsome and feared Babylonians. Well, how did they come to power? They came to power when they overthrew who? They overthrew the notoriously brutal Assyrians. The Assyrians had taken the ten northern tribes captive, and they were some of the most brutal people of the ancient world, and the Babylonians overtook them. But not even a hundred years after Babylon overtook Assyria, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. And who were the Medo-Persians? The Medo-Persians were the people that the Babylonians put their thumb on their windpipe until they almost choked out. And when they caught their breath, they gathered their strength and they overthrew their oppressors. Friends, do you understand there's nothing new under the sun? If we are blessed to possess worldly wealth, we ought to follow the counsel of the Lord Jesus in Luke 16, 9, to use our worldly wealth to win friends into heaven. So that when our wealth is gone, we're welcomed into heavenly dwellings. Invest these things in enterprises that win people to Jesus. So our text is saying the plunderer is a blunderer because he fails to remember his maker, wrongly believing his temporal wealth is his savior. But in the end, Jesus is right. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And it is in Jesus, not in wealth, in which we must place our faith. And this brings us to letter D. Letter D today. Woe to the exploiter. Verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, and you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So the idea is 
He invites his neighbor over and he gets him tipsy and then he gets him to the point where their inhibitions are gone so that they can exploit them sexually. It's often not hard to discern in this broken world who among us has weaknesses. Weaknesses for the bottle. Weaknesses for pills. Weaknesses for the desire for fame or whatever. And, And we ought to use this knowledge to keep our brother from stumbling. But sadly, many of us will use this knowledge to what? To cause our brother or sister to stumble. We'll take advantage. We'll exploit this person who clearly is broken. The wealthy, we're exploiting the needy. The sly, we're exploiting the naive. But the God of heaven was watching all of these things. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Have we not witnessed a taste of this in the rapid public descent of despicable exploiters? If I were to say the name Harvey Weinstein, what would you think of? A rapid reversal from mogul to heel. It looks a lot like what our passage is saying about the exploiter, doesn't it? There is nothing new under the sun. We just failed to teach, preach, and listen to the whole counsel of God. Now, I want you to notice it's not just the exploitation of one's neighbor that angers our Savior, but in our passage, it's even how we handle nature. Our Creator holds us accountable for our exploitation of His creation. God specifically mentions the exploitation of His great forests that He planted, and and the critters that He created, and the cities that He enabled people to found and flourish. Look at verse 17, because it's easy to miss this in all the heaviness of Habakkuk. Verse 17, He condemns the exploiter specifically for the violence done to Lebanon. Now, in the Bible, Lebanon is famous for one thing, the forests of Lebanon. Uh, He says, the violence done to Lebanon, that is the famous forests of Lebanon, will overwhelm you, Babylon, as will the destruction of the beasts that were in those forests. That will end up terrifying you. For the blood of man, the people you kill, and the violence to the earth and to the cities that they built and all who dwell in them. So, so biblically, Lebanon uh, is famous for its cedar trees. If you go to Caldwell Pizzeria, there's a place there uh, on, on Bloomfield Avenue owned by some Lebanese folks. It's called, I think, Cedars. <laughs> if you look at the flag of modern Lebanon, what's at the center? A cedar. In the Bible, uh, you have God's temple was built with what? The cedars of Lebanon. And, and then you have archaeological inscriptions that go back to the Assyrians concerning them hunting in the forests of Lebanon. If you have a a large nature preserve, you have a lot of critters in there. And so the Assyrian inscriptions show the Assyrians coming all the way from Mesopotamia to Lebanon to hunt the game in the forests. And it would appear that the Babylonians took the hunting the Assyrians did and took it to decimating and eradicating the beasts in the forests of Lebanon. And so here in verse 17, we're going to see God's concern for his creation and his anger at its exploitation, be it the exploitation of humans made in his image, they're mentioned, 
or the forests, or the beasts that were made for His glory, because all of the heavens and all the earth exist for the glory of God, but even the cities. And people need to realize that as they take torch to cities, that God was holding them accountable to the cities that He had enabled to flourish so that people could thrive and live. We ought not exploit one another. We ought not exploit nature. And we ought not exploit where we cluster in those cities. But, but hear this clearly, because this can be weaponized by those that take half a truth and run with it like it's the only truth in the Bible. Christians ought to worship Father God, not Mother Earth. God held the exploiter accountable for how he handled creation, but the Bible tells us to worship Father God, not Mother Earth. Environmentalism can become a kind of religion for people. But creation care is a biblical mandate of Scripture. But it is biblical, and yet it is peripheral. The central thing is bringing people to Jesus and making disciples. Creation care falls under that. It shouldn't supplant glory to Christ and making disciples for Christ. Our mandate as co-regents is given in the garden before sin crept in. And it was this, that we might fill the earth, and here it is, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves in the earth. Man is given a special status by God. The whale is not more important than the male. The turtle egg, as important as it is, is not as important as the human egg. One is destroyed, the other is huge finds. We might have that backwards. We worship Father God, not Mother Earth, but we are responsible for how we do with this good world God has given us. Are we using it in a way that glorifies the Savior and edifies our neighbor, or are we not? So we are to care for creation, we're just not to worship. We are to worship our Creator, not any aspect of His creation. And that brings us to letter E today in our passage. Woe to the idolater. Woe to the idolater, verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, or to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, but it has no breath in it at all. It has been well said that God created us in His image, and ever since we've been returning the favor. We've been making false gods in our image, whatever we like. We like strength, you have the strong God. We like smart, we have the smart God. We like wealth, we have the, the God that brings you money. Sometimes we get so sophisticated, we bypass calling them gods, and we just make a god out of money, and that becomes the thing we worship. Even though we don't go to a temple with a steeple, we look at the bank and say amen. God says, woe to the idolater. Now, given our confusion and given God's directions, points one and point two in our sermon so far, what is the believer's conclusion today? That's our third and final point, the believer's conclusion. Regarding the believer's conclusion, the first thing the Word of God wants you to know is this, letter A. Here it is. When the world is topsy-turvy, when things aren't the way they should be, when the, the wicked are winning and the, uh, the, the righteous are sinning and the mocker is grinning, here's what you need to know. God says, the righteous shall live by his faith. 
The righteous shall live by his faith. Verse 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make sure everybody knows it. Make it plain. Everybody should understand it. Put it on tablets so nobody can change it. So that we can take it as far as anyone who's confused needs to hear it. Uh, on tablets so he may run he who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. That's the unrighteous. Conceited, swollen is what's happening in the Hebrew. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Friends, verse 4 is the hinge of our book. Verse 4 is the hinge of the book of Habakkuk. It, it is the fulcrum of God's message to us today. Verse 4 is where all the confusion and consternation of chapters 1 and 2 dissipate and all the hope and peace of chapter 3 begin to start. One scholar put it this way, Habakkuk 2.4 is similar to the constricted part of an hourglass. In an hourglass, you go like this, in the constricted middle where it all comes together. Everything that precedes it leads up to it, and everything that follows from it results from it. Habakkuk 2.4, the hinge of our message. So this verse from God, this is God replying directly, presents two very stark paths that you can take. Habakkuk 2.4 is a fork in the road in the mind of God. There is the swollen conceited person and the road he takes in life. And then there is the person of faith and the road he or she takes in life. One person, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him according to God. But, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, if this verse sounds familiar to you and you go, I don't read much Habakkuk. I can't spell Habakkuk. I couldn't find Habakkuk. But I've heard this verse. The reason is because the Bible brings it up again and again and again. This verse is quoted three times in our New Testaments. We find it in Romans 1.17. We find it in Galatians 3.11. We find it in Hebrews 10.38. And in Romans, the emphasis of the Word of God is on the phrase, the righteous. And Romans unpacks what does it mean to be righteous with God. And in Galatians, the emphasis is on faith. That's how we come to God. And in Hebrews, the emphasis is on live. That is, you're going to walk in faith. The righteous person continues walking in faith. It's not a one-time, it's an all-the-time ongoing decision. And many people have noted that Habakkuk 2.4 expresses the central theme of the entire Bible. Habakkuk 2.4 expresses the entire theme of the entire Bible, that the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, it is by faith that we have hope when everything else seems hopeless. It is by faith we can have peace when the world is not peaceful. It is by faith we can have joy even in the midst of trial. So in times of terrible tumult, let us remember letter B today. The Lord is still on His throne. The Lord is still on His throne. Verse 20 says this, The Lord is in His holy temple. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 6 that He is 
seated on that temple. Revelation says that Jesus is seated on that holy throne. The Lord is still on his throne. Jesus urges us in John 14, 27, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The prophet Isaiah reminds us, do not fear for I am with you and do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When Ethan was a little boy and we had infusions and that was not going well and it was difficult and it was hard to find a vein and we're not medical people and you try and poke a kid who doesn't stop bleeding so you can give him the thing that makes him stop bleeding because right now he's bleeding and it's little veins and you live in Africa and it's hot and little veins that are hard to get become very hard to get when you're not super hydrated. We went to that verse and we would talk to him about this verse. For I am with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And he would squeeze an invisible right hand. And God allowed us every time, eventually, not always the first time, sometimes we had to bring others into the mix. He always came through in the end. And this little person, three, four, five, would hold the invisible hand of a visible God. He's visible because he's real. He's invisible because we do not yet see him face to face. But one day we will. Friends, in our times of confusion, we must remember letter C. I am accountable to the Lord. It's not the other way around. I am accountable to the Lord. He's my maker. He's my judge. He is the one I will stand before. We put God on trial. That's what Habakkuk did in chapter 1. That's what Habakkuk did in chapter 2. That's what we do when the world doesn't seem to be working the way it's supposed to be working. We put God on trial, but God is the judge of all the earth. He is our maker, he is our sustainer, and he is our judge. I am accountable to the Lord. It is not the other way around. Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Often we put God on trial, but God is our judge. We are not his. When we judge him, it is the height of arrogance on the part of man. Often we don't know why a particular thing is happening. Often we don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. We just know this hurts and we don't like this and we don't know the bigger picture and we don't know all that he's achieving in this situation. In Habakkuk's day, God permitted the temporary ascendancy of Babylon because he wanted to serve wider kingdom purposes. This was for a season, and it was going to be hard. In fact, Babylon didn't even have a hundred-year reign. Brutal, powerful, mean, but not even a hundred years. Friends, here is what we know. When you don't know what's going on, here's what you know. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. 200 years ago, that fire back in Saramapur, India in 1812, it destroyed over a decade. It destroyed 12 years of vital Bible translation. And on that day in 1812, I think it was March, uh, whatever it was, 11th at 6 p.m., That's all you could see standing there was the burning up of all the work that had gone on so the word of God could go to people who had never heard it. And historians tell us that when Carrie was summoned to the scene, he saw 
the absolute devastation of the mission station and his life's work, and he wept. And this is what he said, quote, In one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. He said, I had lately brought some things to the utmost perfection in which they seemed capable. Meaning, he had basically finished these translations and he felt like they were accurate. And contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation. And the Lord has laid me low that I may more simply look to him. End quote. Now, little did Carrie know that this very fire that destroyed all of his life's work for the 12 years he'd been in India, God was going to use that to do something he could have never imagined. It was going to bring the work of the gospel in India to the front page of the Christian church around the world. He's called the father of the modern missions movement, but mission had been going on for about 100 years in the West. But Kerry really got people going, and this fire was part of it because this fire would bring the work of the word of God needing to go to the nations who hadn't yet heard it. It would bring it to people in Europe and America, and even in India, they would hear this story. And so in just 50 days after that place burned to the ground, Christians in just two countries, England and Scotland alone, just those two countries, they raised 10,000 pounds, which is a lot of money in 1812. They raised 10,000 pounds for rebuilding this gospel publishing enterprise. And so much money was coming in so quickly that Andrew Fuller, who was Kerry's friend and a leader of his mission over in England, had to tell the missions committee, we need to stop taking contributions. We can't possibly use it all. And through that tragic fire, many people accepted a call to come to India and elsewhere to take the gospel to people that needed it. God lit a fire under his apathetic church. Someone had to be pretty devastated for a while until we understood what God was doing. And so by William Carey's death in 1834, that seemingly senseless fire that was so strategically used of God, that once very meager printing operation had expanded to the point of Carey's death in 1834 that complete Bibles or portions of Scripture were published in 44 different languages or dialects. Friends, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Who are we to judge the Lord of all the earth? Let's pray. Lord, it's with a holy humility that we come to you. You are our Redeemer and our Savior and our friend, and you invite us to come to you with an unvarnished honesty. We can be honest to God in our prayers. And many times we, are too, we find we are too refined and we want to give sanitized Sunday school prayers and we wonder why prayer seems to be so potent and powerful for others and so perfunctory for us. Maybe our prayer life needs to become more biblical. Or Jesus, even as we come to you with raw honesty, it is also true that we must come to you reverently and with humility. No saint in Scripture was ever castigated for sharing the unvarnished opinion of their heart so long as they were not blasphemous in so sharing. And we have many psalms, and we have the book of Habakkuk, and we have the cries of much of Job that attest that it's okay 
to be honest to God. And Lord, there will be things in our life, perhaps right now, perhaps with coronavirus and the tumult in our country and all of the challenges economically and politically and all of these things that are going on. Perhaps that's the thing. For others of us, the macro is background noise to the micro. There's there's cancer, there's challenges, it's our business that's, that's facing shuttering, it's our home that's facing foreclosure. I don't know, but I know that in this broken world, we're going to see things and we go, that's not how this should be. And that's because this isn't over. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to have a tenacious clinging that the righteous shall live by faith. Not faith in faith, faith in the one true God, who's truly revealed in the Bible, who has been proved o'er and o'er, the, the hymnal tells us, and indeed he has. You are an all-sufficient Savior, but sometimes we have to wait patiently on the Lord. You are working all things for our good, and even what man means for evil, you can use for good. And trials produce character. They produce perseverance and, and many things that we just couldn't get if life was all cotton candy and marshmallows. And we were wrapped in bubble wrap. And we know our children grow best when they're put under a certain amount of good stress, when they're pushed to excel, when they're pushed to go beyond just what is easy. And how much more are you a good parent? And how much more wise are you? And so, Lord Jesus, help us to cling to you tenaciously, to speak to you honestly, to refrain from being blasphemous, to have the holy humility to say, I don't understand, but I still trust, because the righteous shall live by his faith. Amen.